blessing and a delight that we have been granted to assemble, to gather as we are this evening. And I know that each of us are quite thankful, given that there are many who, due to various circumstances, are unable to meet as they would very much like. Denise Brooklyn and I, excited that all of our family are able to be with us this evening. We're certainly always excited to be able to come together in meetings such as this one, assembled in the name of the God of heaven. You may already notice on the wall behind me that our topic, our focus, our consideration for this evening will turn our attention to one of the books of the Old Testament. You may notice as a part of that title it says Minor Prophets. We here at Pippin set ourselves the, the task, the rather desirable one of several months ago, that we each month would take one of the Minor Prophets, turn our attention to that particular book and try to develop and learn some of the issues and matters and lessons that we might extract from it. Tonight we come to the tenth of the Minor Prophets, the book of Haggai. And this opening slide is an introductory one that might well set us on our course for the time of our study this evening. As I just mentioned, this is the tenth of the Minor Prophets. But as you may notice near the bottom of that slide, it is the first of the post-exilic prophets. We have often made note in our studies that some of the prophet books were written before the people went into Babylonian captivity. Some of them were written while the people were in Babylonian captivity. And some of them were written after the captivity ended and the people were allowed to come back home. This is the first of the minor prophets that falls in that last category. The people had come back, but there were some problems, some issues, some matters that God needed to encourage in them. And you and I will be encouraged in them as well tonight. Haggai only has 38 verses, so it's really a fairly short book to read. But how deep and how profound in many ways it turns out to be. As you come to this next slide with me, I'm going to be rather brief tonight in re reflecting on some again of that setting because I'd like for us to get to some of the latter issues that we haven't so far discussed in the other minor prophets. As we've already learned, God's people, although they had come out of Egyptian captivity and stayed, of course, in the land of Canaan for quite a few centuries, they finally, due to their disobedience to God, were turned back over to the enemy. And so the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, taking the people captive. They killed many of them as well. And as you and I come to the book of Haggai, you may notice that during that period of time that they were in captivity, they first were overruled by the Babylonians and later by the Persians. But it is under the Persian rule that God blessed them by raising up a king named Cyrus who allowed them to return he graciously allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, to Judah, if they wanted. You'll notice then on that slide, that brings us really to some of the setting of the book of Haggai tonight. About a third of the way down that slide, you may note this with me. The people did return, at least many of them. Now, not nearly all, but many of them did choose to go back. And when they did, one of the first matters of significance and one of the greatest issues of prime importance was the reconstruction of those matters connected to their worship. The Babylonians had destroyed that temple, and it was no longer there. As ornate and as extravagant as that Solomon temple had been, they, they burned it, Second Kings 25.9 tells us. And so when the people came back, there was no temple. They didn't have, you see, a place like that to worship. And so one of the first things that, in fact, we learn from these Old Testament books is this. They needed to rebuild the wall of the city. Nehemiah would encourage them in that work. 
But the work of Ezra was this. They needed to rebuild the temple. They needed to organize a place wherein they could carry out those sacrifices, those other things connected to what God had revealed to them. That was of prime significance. It was of great importance. Tonight, you and I then will learn what happened when the people went back. Did they rebuild the temple like God wished them to do? Did they invest their efforts to bring about that work? At the very bottom of that slide, may I share a piece of good news with you. In the second year after they came back from the Babylonian captivity, we learn in Ezra chapter 3, they did begin to build. They laid the foundation of the temple. And that sounds like a positive and powerful beginning. And then I must turn the slide. Because you'll notice a number of issues arose. A number of problems developed. One of them was this. Not everybody who lived in that Jerusalem area wanted the temple rebuilt. Not everybody wanted the walls of the city rebuilt. And therefore, a number of enemies arose. Adversaries, if you please. And we read about some of them in Ezra, the fourth chapter. These people, you see, were not Jews, and so they really had no interest in the rebuilding of Jerusalem or the rebuilding of the temple. And that brings me to this observation. For 14 long years, not a single thing was done on that temple. The foundation had been laid, the work had been started, and then they quit. They stopped, they ceased. They no longer invested their efforts in the rebuilding of the temple. They stopped that work and did something else. It's at that point, you notice, God stirred up Haggai. God commissioned this prophet to come before the people, preach to them, prophesy to them, proclaim to them, to encourage them to continue that work, to finish it, to go about completing that which they had begun. It is in that regard I now have a piece of interesting news that I would share with you on that slide. The hindrance to the rebuilding of the temple wasn't just due to the enemies. And we might need to take careful note of this. I mentioned that a moment ago because the book of Ezra does. But there were some other reasons. There were some other matters that actually had a part to play in their not rebuilding in the continuance of that temple. And I've asked you to notice on the slide, could I borrow the words of Haggai 1 verse 2? Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, The people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built you begin to appreciate. The people were now arriving at a point, I don't think it's time to rebuild the temple. I don't think that that's that necessary. I don't think that's important. And I believe that work can wait. And you notice, that's one of the first declarations of the book of Haggai. The people were saying it's not time to rebuild it. Despite the fact that was the express reason why Ezra had led them back, and despite the fact that that was the careful matter that God expected of them, and yet their perspective was different. You may notice something else, as you'll notice on that slide as well. The people had become discouraged. Isn't it true that discouragement is one of the most useful tools in the devil's toolbox? To bring a people who otherwise were enthusiastic, who otherwise were earnest and somewhat energetic in the, as they started it, they became discouraged among other things. In fact, I would ask you to notice in chapter 2, verse 3 of this book, the following statement. 
Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? The people you see were looking at things with blinders on. They were looking only, if you please, in a rearview mirror. They remembered how great the Temple of Solomon's day had been. And you and we each remember how fine that was, how extravagant, how expensive. We have been studying that on Sunday morning of late in our Bible class, haven't we? Some of the people, as they looked at this foundation that was now laid, they were sad. They were in despair. They were in discouragement. Because they remembered what the earlier temple had looked like, and they thought, this one is like nothing compared to that one. May I offer the thought that we need to be careful. If we only look at things as if we only see the perspective of history, we fail to see the vision before us. We fail to see the opportunities and the doors God is now opening. If all we ever do is think about the past... In that light, Haggai then had a challenge to encourage the people despite this meager-looking foundation. Don't you know that it is the commandment of God that we do this and He will bless it? And that's one of the great lessons we learn from this little book. You'll notice one last thing on that slide, and it's this. We learned this in the book of Ezra, actually. Some of the old men were crying. When they looked at this foundation compared to the temple that they remembered, they cried. They were unable apparently to see in this new temple a new work due to the hand of God and the blessing that no doubt would come in it. This next slide will finish at least this brief historical development. And I would simply say this, that God delivered through this prophet Haggai an amazing but brief message encouraging them to get back to work to finish what they had started, and to do that in a way that again would meet the command that God had given. That new temple was going to be grand because it met the commandment of God. The last two things would be these. The second chapter of Haggai makes an amazing description. It describes that there was going to be a tremendous shaking in many ways of earth. And he wasn't talking about a literal earthquake. He was talking about a monumental and colossal and amazing set of events that were going to transpire surrounding the work of Haggai and the rebuilding of that temple. We'll have to see in a moment that to which that referred. But there is a statement here that I believe we ought to note quickly in passing. In Haggai 2 verse 9, God through the prophet made this interesting statement. The glory of this rebuilt temple will be greater than the glory of the Solomonic one. Now you and I might immediately ask, how could that ever be? This people didn't have nearly the financial resources like Solomon had. They didn't have nearly access to the tools and other matters to rebuild it. How could its glory be greater? We shall see shortly. Let's look at some applications, at least at this point, and we'll take the opportunity to reflect on some of this history and also extract some lessons from it that can be so helpful to us. It begins with the statements of verses 5 and 7 of Haggai chapter 1. One of the first reminders that God, through the prophet, issued to the people involved these three words, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Remember, the people had lapsed into apathy. They had lapsed into indifference. 
Though they had started with energy and enthusiasm, that had waned. And now they had tried to make the argument, it's not time to rebuild the temple. And so they invested their efforts on what they wanted to do instead of what God commanded them to do. And so at the top of that slide, I would point out that God, through the prophet, issued to them, you need to consider your ways. Are you really doing that which God wishes of you, or have you really chosen to follow your preferences? At this point, could I point out this interesting statement? It's in chapter 1, verse 4. Let me begin reading in verse 3, please. It says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? we begin to see what had taken place. Remember, when they came back from Babylon, they had brought with them a large number of supplies. In fact, Ezra and Zerubbabel had acquired letters that permitted them access to various woods and other things that they could use to rebuild the temple. You might ask, the foundation didn't involve that. What did they use all that wood for? You begin to see. They built their houses... And you notice they're described as sealed. The literal Hebrew word is paneled. I suspect, and it would appear in fact to be directly buoyed by the text before us, that they had utilized the pieces of lumber and the other particulars that they had brought back with them not to build the temple, but rather to cover the insides of their houses. And that was that for which they had used those supplies. I think it's interesting that that word sealed, as it appears in this passage, is the same word that appears in 1 Kings 6 verse 9. Where there, the description of what Solomon did in terms of the woods of cedar and fir, those were said to be sealed, C-E-I-L-E-D. And so it would appear again that they ornately took care of the interiors of their houses. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't it again point out that their real interest and their real prerogative and priority, it appears, was related to that. You'll notice next on that slide is this. You and I can make many applications about that to ourselves, can't we? You and I, can you see, be led by way of deception under the impression that we are following that of God, but am I really? Am I living in accordance to His ways? Consider your ways. May well be what God shouts to each one of us as well. We live in a world that so often brings before us matters of choice, matters of what is often presented as great significance, and yet as we pursue them, we may well come to realize that behind it is a worldly perspective, an attitude that's not that consistent with the fullness of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 will encourage each of us, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. It is in that light, I might say this. The people, you see, it's true they had their enemies, but the greatest enemy was really within themselves. Their priorities had been misplaced. They wanted their sealed houses instead. And therefore, the temple of God lay waste, uncompleted, unfinished. And the text actually said it lie waste for some number of years. One more thing in verse 6 would be this. I've often thought that the description of verse 6 and the imagery that it presents 
is one of the most telling, one of the most memorable, and one of the most heartbreaking scenes in all the Old Testament. You see, God makes a description. I'll tell you what you've done. You have labored to earn wages, but you put it in a bag full of holes. So you have nothing to show for your labor. You have nothing to show for your effort. You put it all in a bag filled with holes. Wouldn't it be tragic to arrive at the day of judgment and you and I might well hear the Master say, you earned wages, but you put them in a bag that had holes in it. I hope all of us in wisdom will appreciate not to make the mistake that the people had made as we read in Haggai 1 verse 6. Surely you and I would wish for our wages to be more carefully garnered and kept. Didn't Jesus say, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now that doesn't in any way say that it's wrong to work, and it's wrong to acquire things. But what we must ever make sure we keep in mind is to have the priority right. Isn't it interesting that we close that slide like this? The opportunity of service that they had been given, they had squandered it. The rebuilding of the temple would have been a masterful thing. Doesn't it remind you of that song that you and I sometimes sing with such earnestness and enthusiasm? Earth holds no treasure, but perish with using, however precious they be. Yet I know of a country to which I'm going, heaven holds all to me. That's the opening stanza in that song called, Earth Holds No Treasures. When you and I sing that, doesn't it remind us that just like in the days of Haggai, there's a greater and richer reality before us. And surely how excited we should be, like they of Haggai's day, to hear the preaching of Haggai and to be able to consider our ways just as well as they did. What about application number two? Did you notice? what the people were told to do. God didn't just send the prophet Haggai and urge them to be sorrowful for what they had just done. They were urged to get back to work and complete the temple. I think we're all rather excited into here. So did they go back to work? Under the preaching of Haggai, did they follow through? Or did they continue to say it isn't time to rebuild the temple? I hope in excitement you and I can notice they did get back to work and they did more in 23 days than they had done in the 14 previous years. That always tells us what the Word of the Lord can do. It can motivate. It can provide incentive. It can bring us to recognize the needfulness of activity and labor. And isn't it wonderful to appreciate that the kingdom of the Lord is filled with those who obey and do the work of the Lord. It's still fascinating, isn't it, to notice that it wasn't merely good intentions. They weren't just encouraged to have the right mindset. They were encouraged to complete that temple. And like I said, they did it in a very short amount of time once they put their mind to it. Isn't that a lesson for us as well? When the people had a mind to work, borrowing the words of Ezra 4 verse 6, oh, what they accomplished. Isn't that still true? When the people, when you and I have a mind to work, what can we accomplish for the Lord? 
What can we bring about that would be consistent with the teaching of the gospel and bringing souls to the matter of Christ? The people did a lot in 23 days. That's less than a month. And for 14 years, nothing. Zero. Nil. Oh, what had happened. Because you see, they had slid away from that indifference. And they had come to be challenged to recognize that the temple was important and completing it was significant. And it was the will of God that it be done. You'll notice next on that slide is a number of verses that continue to challenge you and me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, to borrow the words of Philippians 2.12. You and I have a work to do as well, don't we? Work in which we labor in the beautiful assembly we call the church. In Titus 3.14, Let ours also learn to maintain good works that they be, that they be not unfruitful. As you and I are encouraged in the light of good works, isn't it delightful that God has blessed us with talents and abilities and capacities, and we can use them according to the gift He's given us, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, and do that in a way that would direct all the honor and all the glory unto Him. After all, that is the way that we demonstrate our faith, isn't it? In James 2, verses 17 and 18, isn't that the very message that James and otherwise presents to us. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Isn't it true then that we still labor today as a demonstration of our commitment and our faith to the God of heaven? I mentioned earlier that there was an issue that we would return, and I think the time to do that is the current pleasant time. The people had come to a point of despair as they looked at this meager foundation that was now before them, and they thought back to that previous temple that apparently they had been able to witness. It appears they were rather old by this time, because remember, the captivity lasted nearly 70 years. So these men that were crying had to be very much up in years. It is something, though, to think about the short-sightedness of their viewpoint. They couldn't appreciate the nature of this new commandment of God and the greatness that this temple would bring. All they could remember is what once was. If you and I only live in the past, we are destined to be disappointed. We're destined to fall somewhat hollow. Because God has opened doors in front of us, not behind us. Once the past has been completed, we can't change it. We can't undo it. We can do nothing about taking back any second or minute or hour that has already consumed in the past. But what lies before us may well involve open doors to which Paul referenced in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Paul said there are open doors. May you and I appreciate that saying because that's a beautiful promise, isn't it? You may notice another matter on that slide that takes us to that is this. One of the dangers that goes with only living in the past is to appreciate that it quite often brings about unthankfulness. In other words, I'm not thankful for the present or of what the future may hold. All I can think about is the despair of what I once had but I no longer do that can again be a very discouraging way to live. Aren't you thankful that God's tomorrow is always brighter than mankind's today? 
Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21, shout those words so beautifully. No wonder in that connection, unthankfulness is described in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 and following in a very dark way. Among the sins that Paul listed in that passage, sins which you and I would quickly agree, those are just so tragic and awful and evil, and unthankfulness is a part of the list. I'm quite thankful, as I know you are, that in our public prayers here at Pippin, we express thanks to God for so many things, and He justly deserves our thanks. May we also pray that way in private, however, making sure to thank Him for the blessings of our life, understanding that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1 verse 17. For that reason, I might also offer this thought. We find in the life of Joshua, again, a man who might easily have just recollected what it was like when Moses was the leader. Recollected what it was like to have that man who had been on the mount for 40 days in direct contact with God. Maybe Joshua felt inadequate, but if he did, we see no hint of it. Because God told him in Joshua chapter 1, don't you turn to the right or to the left. You always stay faithful to me and you will be richly blessed as the leader of this people. There can be great marching words in that for you and me, can't there? As you and I close that slide and we come to one final obligation, one final lesson, I know you've perhaps been waiting to readdress one of the comments I made earlier because I suppose we haven't done it at all. How could the grandeur and the glory of this new temple be greater than the glory of the one Solomon built? And yet if I could turn your attention to verse 9 of chapter 2, that's what God said. The text says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. I believe with just a moment's reflection, we know quite well how the greater glory would be in this second one. Ponder it with me this way. That first temple, as immaculate as it was, and it was rich. Some of the Sundays here ahead of us will be attempting to give thought to the monetary value connected to that Solomonic temple Beside that observation, could we say it truly was amazing? Overlaid with gold, the finest of wood, other characteristics such as brass were appearing in various places within it, and to see it must have been something to behold. And yet, the glory of the second one was going to be greater. You and I know very well how that came to pass. Jesus the Christ walked in the second one. That first one was destroyed. Jesus never walked in it, you see, literally. But you and I know that when these people rebuilt this one, it was going to stand for a number of centuries, and without doubt it was going to be renovated a time or two, but it was still the same structure. And when you and I read in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Jesus walked in this temple. In fact, He overthrew some money changers' tables in the environs of it more than once. But he walked in it. And in Luke chapter 4, he preached to them in light of the very place. That's how it was greater. Because the Son of God walked in it. The great glory of God inhabited it. And shouldn't that remind us about how again that God's tomorrow was so bright. 
as you and I close this book of Haggai tonight, it gives us an opportunity to then appreciate that many of the practical lessons in it can still be so meaningful and useful and very much pertinent to your life and mine. In conclusion, this book of Haggai might well be described like this. It is, as we've noted, the tenth of the minor prophets. Though it comes far late in the Old Testament, we find in it things that really challenge you and me every bit as much as it did them. Can you and I become apathetic? Can you and I become indifferent to the work of the Lord? Sure we can, and the devil wants us to. But just like under the days of Haggai, we have the Word of God that motivates and encourages us as well. Not only that, could we allow the work of God to be undone in our life? If so, we should consider our ways just like they did. And not only that, if we found ourselves in that circumstance, then we might well do more in a couple of days than we've done in months or even years. And that's what happened in the days of Haggai. Haggai isn't the only of the post-exilic prophets. Our next lesson will come to the eleventh of the minor prophets, and we'll find in the life and times of Zechariah another set of lessons that will challenge us to think about ourselves and what this means for us. I would close the lesson by saying, isn't it a sweet refrain to know that we serve a God who isn't bound by time? He could tell them the glory of the greater temple. The second one will be greater. And it came to pass. Though Jesus wasn't going to walk on the planet for a little over five centuries. Isn't that amazing? 500 years were going to pass, but God already knew what was going to happen. Aren't you thankful that He can tell you and me what needs to be done in our life so that things will work out the best? So that things will, in fact, redound to our eternal good? Tonight, as you and I consider our ways, if there's anyone in this assembly that would need to make public response to the Lord's invitation, we would issue the words of Haggai, please consider your ways. Use this as a time to make the necessary change that would need to be made. We as a congregation here would be delighted, excited, and we'd be honored to assist in whatever way we might. Brother Joy has chosen this song of encouragement, and we're going to offer that invitation at this time. One who is not a Christian, please believe on the Lord. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that way of Christian life, and maybe you were no longer in need at that time in your life because everything was well, maybe over time things have changed. Priorities have changed. Pursuits have changed. And maybe you need to come back to your first love. Revelation 2 verse 5 tells us that can be done, and we'd be honored to make observation of your repentance and confession and pray along with you. And tonight, if we can help, we'd like to do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.